Revelation 21, verses 1 through 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So for Father's Day, I want to start off by giving a little pro dad, pro tip for dads. Um, whatever you do, don't, don't buy anything made with Velcro. Made with Velcro, you know why? Total ripoff. So <laughs> that's my dad joke for Father's Day. So, um, hey, again, happy Father's Day. We're in the home stretch uh, of our teaching series uh, through crazy book of Revelation, right? So we're now in the last two chapters. In the last two chapters, this is where we have the climax to the Revelation story. 
This is where we find the hopeful future that we've all longed for. It's finally here. Now remember, John, the, uh, the author of Revelation, he's writing to a group of Christians who are going through crazy amounts of persecution. They're going through suffering. And so his purpose to writing to them is to comfort them. To pull back the veil of reality, which is what revelation means, right? Revelation uh, comes from the word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis means unveiling, pulling back the curtain. And so John is pulling back the veil of reality throughout revelation so that his readers can see how behind all of their suffering, behind all their hardship, how Jesus the whole time he's been working behind the scenes and how he's already won. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has already won in spite of their suffering and how sin and evil has already been conquered. And one day, one day to come, they will be no more. And their suffering that their experience is earning them an even greater glory in the future than they could even dream about in the present. And so God puts the book of Revelation in its entirety almost in front of them and says, hey, I want you, I want you to read this. I want you to read this, meditate on it. I want you to try and see this. I want you to get a grasp of this so that if you get a grasp of this, then you can take on anything. You can take on anything. Whenever trial is around the corner, you can face it head on because you'll know that the victory is already yours. In his book, The Last Battle, uh, which is C.S. Lewis's uh, last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, in, the, in that final chapter of his final Narnia book, uh, it, the chapter is called Farewell to Shadowland. And there's this one sweet little paragraph where he says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. And the way that he describes this really, I think, sums up the final chapters here in the book of Revelation. What we have now is we've now moved on from the shadow land. The great dragon, Satan, his beasts, the false prophet, all who've been on everyone who's ever worshipped them and followed them, they're no longer a threat to the joy of God's people. They've been thrown into the lake of fire, which we saw last week, and now this is a new age, a new age for God, a new age for his people, a brand new day. The dream has ended, and now true morning has come. It's like those moments in life where, where you just kind of sit back and you're like, man, this is new, right? I like what's going on. This is new, like those major life events where we think, hey, man, everything's going to be different now. A whole new world is, is opening up to me, like, like the birth of a child, marriage to a spouse, full recovery from an illness that you've been battling with. Like, and those, those are the exact illustrations that John uses to paint this beautiful, breathtaking picture of the new heavens and new earth. He says, 
God says that I will be their God and they will be my children. This picture of this, this new adoption, this final new birth. We see this, this vision of a holy city presented like a bride on her wedding day. We're told that there will be no more death or mourning or weeping or pain. A great recovery. And all of these beautiful images we see in this passage, man, they're just a tiny glimpse. Just a tiny glimpse that point to something truer and greater. We've seen this throughout Revelation, right? You got all these images you got these symbols and these numbers, and we've learned time and time again that it's, not, it's often not just what we read at face value, that there's something bigger, there's something truer, there's something more beautiful, more significant going on underneath the surface of these words. It's like John is saying, hey, look, I'm going to paint a picture of these things, but, but what, what it really is, what's really going to happen is kind of like these things, but so, so, so much more beautiful, so much more spectacular. So the big idea we're going to see in our, in our uh, passage is this, that God, God will make all things new, and that you and I, we get to be a part of that right now. God will make all things new, but we get to, to be a part of that right now. We're going to just look at two things out of all these verses. We're going to look at what God is making new and then how we can take part in that now. Number one, I want you to look forward to the newness to come. Looking forward to the newness to come, which is broken down in the first couple paragraphs here. Beginning in verse one, John describes his vision and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He, God, will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he, who is seated on the throne, said, Behold, in other words, look, Behold, I am making all things new. There's that word again. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done on the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Now, just in these first several passages, this is a hopeful passage, isn't it? This is a hopeful passage. That word new comes up four times. It comes up four times, and there's something in us that just loves the idea of new, right? There's something in us that loves the idea of new, especially here in the suburbs, right? We love new houses. We love new cars. We love putting on new clothes. It's a summertime now when you start working on a new body. Like, we're obsessed with new because there's something in us that tells me and tells us that things aren't supposed to grow old, there's something in us that just goes, when we think about old, right? Like things are not supposed to fall apart. 
our bodies aren't supposed to ache. They're not supposed to wrinkle and sag. That's why we have makeup and Botox. Like We're subject to decay, and something in us just absolutely hates that. And so this passage, it talks about God making all things new, about how he makes all things new the way that they're supposed to be. the way that they were back in the garden. The garden of Eden before sin entered creation, before sin started breaking everything down. Back when things were new back then, God is gonna make all things new again. So I want you to look at the things over the next several verses that he makes new. And as we work through this, my prayer is that our hearts would sing. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll start going through that. Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. And just a hope that they bring. I pray, God, that as we, as we look at each verse, as we behold the truth in these verses, as we hang on each word, would you help our hearts to sing the glory of the resurrected world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, the things that he makes new. <coughs> First, <clears throat> we see a new heaven and a new earth in verse number one. Look at that again. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What we see here is what happens to heaven and earth is the same thing that happens to us when we're born again. When someone's born again, like when you become a Christian, I know that many of us in this room are Christian. I know that some of us are not. We're still kind of exploring this whole Jesus thing. But, but for most of us, when you're a Christian, you're born again, right? When you become a Christian, you die to the old self and you become a new creation in Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us. You become a new creation, a new person. You don't become another person. You become a renewed person. People start to say things about you like, man, he, he's the same person. She's the same person, but there's, there's something different, right? There's something different. Personality might be the same. You might, you might look the same. You might appear the same. But the quality of who you are is different. You got different values. Your values change. Your mission and purpose in life changes. And sometimes, as a new creation, you start to feel out of place in this world, right? You feel like an exile in a foreign land. What this passage tells us is that when Jesus returns, the whole creation is made new. Heaven is made new. The earth is made new. And then Christians won't find themselves as exiles anymore. We'll find ourselves in a world that truly feels like home. Notice it's both heaven and earth that are made new. So our future home is a physical world with physical creatures, a physical creation. Look, a lot of Christians miss this. A lot of Christians miss this because we're so hyper-focused on the spirituality of things. And we kind of hang on to that in pop culture when we, when we think about death and the afterlife. We just cling to the spirituality of things. But man, like when you think of the final day, what do you think of? When you think of forever, when you think of heaven, what do you think of? Most of you, 
Most of you, if you grew up in America, when you think of this day, all you have is this picture of heaven, the spiritual reality. But then you fail to see the full glory of what's being said here in Revelation 21. It's not that heaven is this perfect world that we're going to fly up to one day and and earth, this place that we exist right now, is like this second-rate dwelling place that one day we finally get to like peace out from. No, the Bible tells us not only is heaven made new, but the earth is made new too. The earth is made too. That's significant. It tells us that the earth is going to be made new, not just heaven, and the two are going to be joined together completely in harmony forever. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 tells us that all things are going to be united in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. That's where we're headed. That's the new reality we're headed towards. That's why the closing scene of the Bible is not this vision of humans like getting whisked up to heaven like, like we, we usually kind of understand from pop culture. But no, the Bible says that the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth. And it says the sea will be no more. That means there will be no more darkness, no more chaos, no more confusion. Because if you remember, in the Old Testament, Jews back then, they were not a seafaring people. They were a desert people. They spent generations in the desert, right, in exile, kind of like the Freeman in Dune, or like, like, like the Jawa in Star Wars, right? They were desert people. That's, that's kind of where they lived. It's where they, it's where they roamed around. And so to them, the sea was a scary place. The sea was a symbol of chaos, a symbol of evil. It was a picture of the unknown, a place where you find unknown creatures and beasts that are scary. The sea was the ultimate picture of something unpredictable and uncontrollable. The sea was often a picture of the things that just kind of surprise us and, um, and cause and like turn our worlds upside down for the worse. And so to say the sea will be no more is not to say there's going to be no more, no water in the new earth. It's not to say that we don't get to surf in the new earth. No, it means that the chaos of the world will be no more. It will be like perfect glass. It means the tragedies of this world will come to a final end. It means the wounds that we carry around caused by, by parents, by friends, by those who've hurt us, things that have led to confusion, to sleeplessness and anger and resentment, those things come to an end. It means that emotions and mental health issues that feel like a prison will be taken away once and for all. It means that whatever it is that makes us feel broken and bruised and painful will be no more. The failures, mistakes, and regrets that we cause and that we carry with us will fade away and will be made finally whole. All those things that you think define you, the ones where you hurt other people even, they will no longer be true of you. The sea will be no more. Here's what he sees in verse 4. He says, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the new heaven. 
That is the new earth that we get to inhabit one day. Not only is there a new heaven and new earth, but there's also a new and truer city. We see this in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, when he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, if you remember, cities are like a major theme in the book of Revelation, right? I mean, remember how the book opens? The book opens, you've got seven letters written to seven different churches in seven cities, seven city centers. We also had this great symbol of human civilization that rebels against God in the city of Babylon, right? Remember how we saw that about the, there's two cities that we're all citizens of. You're either citizen of, of, of Babylon or a citizen of the New Jerusalem, right? And the, citizen, the city of Babylon earlier in Revelation uh, symbolizes uh, any human civilization that rebels against God. And here we're told that a new city will come. That's where the New Jerusalem comes in. This is not a city like the ones that we know, with cities that are broken, with corruption and violence, laced with poverty. No, what we see here is a new kind of city, an altogether new kind of city with a new civilization, a new kind of culture, a new community. And check this out. In in Revelation chapter (coughs) 4, Revelation 4 John, he sees this vision of God's throne. And how does he describe it? He says that God's throne has jasper and carnelian, which are the most precious of stones that you could find back in the day that John is writing this. And then here in Revelation 21, I want you to see how this city, the New Jerusalem, has the same descriptors as the throne of God in chapter 4. Look at it in verse 9. He says, Then came out of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Um, One of those angels spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Talking about the new Jerusalem. And he carried me, the angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the three east gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, This, I know there's a lot to keep track of, but here's what I want you to walk away with. This is a picture of glory. This is a picture of glory with all the stones, with all the metals, and all the numbers with the gates of the threes and the twelves. Remember, these numbers have meaning in Revelation. These numbers have meaning. There's, this is a picture, the Holy Jerusalem of the church. This is us. This is us coming out of heaven, down to earth. You see, we think that when we die, we get to like float on up to heaven and just kind of like chill in the clouds, right? Chill in the heavens for eternity. But no, God says that there's coming a day where Jesus will return. And all those who've passed away before that moment, all the saints, all the people of God before that moment will come back down with Jesus. 
and have a renewed, physical, like created existence in the new heavens and new earth. There's a radiance and glory that's described here of the new Jerusalem in which all of God's people throughout history are described here. How do we know that? It says the foundation is the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. In other words, everyone who's had their life, who's had their existence built on what was originally given to the 12 tribes of Israel, and then on top of that, the 12 apostles of the Lamb of Jesus, everyone who has built their life on their teaching, everyone who belongs to the Lamb is part of the city. The foundation is the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Now, that isn't to say that the glory of this city is only for those famous people in history, like the apostles and the tribes. In case you're wondering, like, man, how am I going to make the cut, right? You know what's comforting? What's comforting is when you read the scriptures, when you actually, like, read the stories of the 12 tribes of Israel, when you read the stories of the 12 apostles of Jesus, what do you see? Those 12 tribes, they were a joke. Man, they were a joke. Those 12 apostles, they were a complete mess. They're not exactly great examples of holiness. Their stories are filled with deviance and doubts and all kinds of backsliding and running back to God. Like, and not all of them are famous. Not all of them are known. Some of them hardly get a mention. Like, what do you remember about the apostles like Bartholomew and Thaddeus, right? What do you guys remember about them? Like, no, we hardly know them, right? We know the big ones. We know Peter, James, and John. And to say in Revelation 21, the foundation of this city, the foundation of the new Jerusalem is the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles is another way of saying that the foundation of this city is the story of the gospel of grace. It's the story of every single one of us. It's the story of going from gritty to grace. That's why the language in verse 11 is the same language used to describe the radiance and glory of Jesus in Revelation 4. That tells us that the beauty of this city is not our own. The beauty of the city does not belong to the 12 tribes of Israel. The beauty of the city does not belong to the 12 apostles of the Lamb. No, the beauty of the city belongs to the Lamb himself, the Lamb who was slain. It's not your holiness that gets all sparkly and put on display. It's that you belong to Jesus and you've been brought into him. Our stories are stories of his grace. That's what makes the city so beautiful. It's not us, it's him. In the city, it's said to measure 12,000 stadia in every dimension. It's like this, this giant cube. I'm, I'm, I'm going to run through it quickly, but in verse 15 to 21, it says that the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. He said the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. 
And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its, its, its length and its width and its height are equal, so it's a giant cube. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now remember, every time that you see pictures and images and things like that. Remember, epoctic literature. So, so this is not a literal cube. Like, like some people with their, with their uh, end times charts like have this picture of like this giant cube coming out of the sky and coming down. That's, that's not what this is going to look like, all right? The point is this. The point is that the new Jerusalem, the great city of God, is not made from brick and mortar. It's not even made from precious stones and jewel and gold. The point of those descriptors is to evoke glory in us, to stir our hearts to worship, to bring us to awe, to make us behold, which is the primary command in this passage. The city of God is made up of the blood-bought people of God. You see, right now, we live in the city of Babylon, and so we feel like exiles. We feel like we're out of place because we very much are. And this passage tells us we have no permanent address here in Babylon. The new Jerusalem, the new city, the holy city, that's where our citizenship resides, And so the new creation is a city, a new and truer city. Next, we see an image of a new and truer bride. Look at verse 2 again. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God. And here's how he describes it. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. <coughs> now, earlier... When we saw the 12,000 stadia, the 144 cubits, those numbers were given to us to, as a symbol to show a complete number, right? Because you got the 12 tribes of the old covenant, you got the 12 apostles of the new covenant, 12, by 12 times 12 is what? 144, all right? So that's what the 144 cubits means. So what this tells us, is that all the people of God across the ages are the city. All the people of God throughout the ages are the bride. All the people of God across the ages are finally made perfect and sinless at last, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. They're shining as a perfect mirror image of God himself in all his glory. And look at what, it, look at what God does here. It says that he prepares the bride. He's the one preparing us like a bride adorned for her husband, which is Jesus. Even now, 
Even right now, God is preparing us for that day to be presented to Jesus on that wedding day. Even right now, God is preparing us. Even right now, he's working in ways that we cannot even see or understand. But one day, we will see. One day, we will understand. We'll be whole. We'll be beautiful. The church is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God has prepared by his spirit through his word for this great wedding day. Man, I want you to think about the last wedding you went to. When, when you see a bride coming down the aisle to her husband, no one sits there and thinks, man, look how broken she is, right? No, everyone's saying, look how beautiful she is. She cleans up nicely, right? Look how beautiful she is. Ephesians 5 gives us a fuller picture of what's happening here. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did he give himself up for her? Through his death on the cross. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, that means set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, Jesus he died to bring this moment that we're seeing in Revelation 21 to bring it to pass. Jesus died. He laid his life down. He died for our sins. He took on the penalty of our sins, absorbing death on the cross so that he could bring this moment in Revelation 21 to full realization and he has been working throughout history. He's been working across the ages to set his people apart by his word and by his spirit until this day that we're reading about finally appears, finally comes. That is what he is doing actually right now. That's what he's doing to his people right now. Through our worship, through our witness, when we endure through our suffering, when we grow spiritually, Jesus is applying the gospel to us, applying the good news of his death and resurrection. And he's scrubbing from us, scrubbing from us every spot or wrinkle or blemish until we're finally presented holy before him a new and truer bride, more beautiful than any bride the world has ever seen, the church of Jesus Christ. Next, we see a new and truer temple, a new and truer temple of God's presence. We see this in verse three when John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them 
as their God. John is helping us see two major themes all throughout the Bible. <coughs> the garden <coughs> and the temple. Two major themes. First, the garden. Where do we see the garden? We see the garden at the very beginning of the Bible, right? <coughs> and what happened in the garden? <coughs> in the garden, God's people experienced his presence in an unhindered way. In our passage here, verse 22, it says in these first few verses that the new Jerusalem will be like a garden. It'll be like a garden with trees and fruit, and the end of the world will be like, just like the beginning it was in the, in the garden. <coughs> the second major theme, I just realized when you put a coffee, cough drop in your mouth, you have a lisp, so. <coughs> no going back now. Um, <coughs> second major theme is, is the temple. And the temple is a place that dealt, dwelt with human sin, and divine holiness. We see this all throughout the scriptures, right? Like when, when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, what happened? God's presence was, was, was taken away from them. And then later when you have the people, the Israelites, God's presence was taken to a back room of a holy place, to the holy of holies in, in the temple. The temple in the holy of the holies was where you had this high priest, who would, who would go in once a year uh, to, 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 to make sacrifice for the people. But he could only go in after being washed himself many times and making many sacrifices of his own for his own sins, right? It was to give us this picture that in God's presence, which is perfect holiness, you can't have sin, right? You can't have sin. And so then Jesus comes and he says, hey, look, I'm the new temple. You don't need that temple anymore. He comes and he says, I'm the new temple. And then when he dies and resurrects and returns to heaven, he says, hey, look, I'm sending my spirit down to you so that now you are the new temple. My church is the new temple. Revelation 21 right here reminds us that there's still no need for a physical temple. He's showing that the temple is not physical because the whole earth will be made into the holy of holies. God will dwell with his people again in the same way he did in the garden. That same access that Adam and Eve had to their creator before sin entered the world, that's the same access that you and I are going to get in the new heavens and new earth. You see, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth with a new temple. But the new heavens and the new earth itself will be the temple. And so what John's trying to get us to see with this imagery of the temple and the garden is that, like, although right now we get, like, this limited perspective of God's presence with us, right? Like, there's, there's a sense in which when we're receiving the word like we're doing right now, we feel something, we receive something of God's presence. There's, there's a sense in which when we're worshiping him together, there's a uniqueness that we feel in sense of God's presence. When we take communion together, 
is the uniqueness of, of Christ's presence with us. And so right now, we get these limited degrees and experiences of God's presence. But what's coming, what's coming, what's promised in Revelation 21 is the fullness of his presence. The garden will go to the ends of the earth. The temple is here. God dwelling with his people. So I want you, I want you to look forward to this newness to come. Number two, I want you to embrace the newness that we receive today. Embrace the newness that we receive today. Look at verse five. Verse five, it says, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This is God from his throne saying, behold. In other words, look, look and gaze. Meditate on this. Receive this. Behold, I am making all things new. Notice he doesn't say, behold, I will make all things new. He says, no, I am making all things new. And also it says, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So here's, here's God on his throne saying, behold, I am making all things new. And just to make sure that you and I don't miss this in the 21st century, just to make sure that those first century Christians who were suffering and being persecuted don't miss this point, God says, hey, just to be sure, like write this down. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I am making all things new. We are called to behold, to look, to see what God has done, to see what God is doing, to set our eyes on it, to set our minds on it, to place our hearts on the hope of it. Everyone, by the way, wants these things to be true. Every single one of us. We want these things to be true. Every human heart longs for the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. There's a sociologist I read about. I, f I forget um, his name. David something. I think it's Gibson. Um, but he was saying, like, uh, like uh, just over the last year, when the world sort of started like recovering from, from, from everything that happened throughout 2020, right? He's like, yeah, like when you look, when you look at the um, like mental health and depression and all the anxiety, like all the mental health issues that we had during 2020 and, and, and even from that, he's like, we're still recovering from that, right? He's like, we're, that, that definitely had an effect on us. He's like, but when you look at people's level of satisfaction, nothing changed. Nothing changed. He's like, we're unhealthy, we're more anxious and things like that, but we're just as dissatisfied of life. He's like, people talk about going back to normal, but he's like, we didn't even like what normal was before, right? We didn't like what normal was before. We were just as unsatisfied before. We don't wanna go back to normal, we wanna go to something better. 
There's something that we all long for, something that we all yearn for. Everyone wants this to be true, the newness, the renewal of all things. We all long for that. Christianity just wants you to know that it's true. It's real. And it's coming. It's coming, and you can receive part of it now. There's only one command for us in this passage. We see it in verse 3, and we see it in verse 5. The command is this, behold, look, gaze, meditate. This new heavens and new earth, this pureness, this beauty, is not something of our own creativity. It's not something that we bring to the table, that we bring into the world. It's a gift. It's a grace. We're just invited to behold. He says, I am making all things new. The grammar there is what we call present progressive. That means God is saying, look, I'm making things new right now, and I'll continue to make things new until it's fully complete. So listen, God is making all things new right now. Right now. If you've been born again, become a new creation in Christ, you've already tasted something of that. God is making all things new right now, and he'll continue to make all things new until that work is complete. Look, that means there's something to receive about these realities that we unpacked verse by verse. There's something to be received about those realities today. The newness that is coming in the future that will, one, be here in complete newness can start to break into your life today. The newness of strength, the newness of power, the newness of living, the newness of purpose and mission. How does it come? How does it come? It comes through the throne. Notice, it's the one who's seated on the throne who invites us to behold. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. He doesn't say catch up. He doesn't say work your way in to this club so that you can earn your way in. He just says, behold. So how does, how does the newness break into your life today? By listening to the one on the throne. It comes through the throne. Look what else he says. He says, verse 7 and 8, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I'll be his God and he or she will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That lake of fire that we saw God's enemies fl uh, get flung into in the last chapter, that will be the same fate for all these people in verse 8. Now, what does that tell us? These verses tell us that to the degree that you are in Christ, 
to the degree that you are under the lordship of Christ, to the degree that you are listening, submitting to what he invites you to from his throne, to the degree that you are living for him, this newness starts to seep into your life right in the here and now. Look, maybe you open your Bible each day and you don't feel the power of that newness. You don't find your hope renewed. You don't find your joy renewed. And so what do you do? This text says, just go to the throne. Go to the throne and come and say, look, there are areas of my life that I know are not under the rule of Christ. There are areas of my life that I have not submitted to him or given over to him. There are areas that I'm not letting Jesus reign as king. So do that. Come to him. Say that prayer and watch that newness start to break in. Dare you. Watch that newness start to break in, the newness of hope, the newness of joy, the newness of being a kingdom citizen of grace, the newness of being his bride, loved as his church. It says the cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, idolaters, so on and so on, are thrown into the lake of fire. So, so how is it that you get that so that you, you don't get in thrown in with them, but that you get in on the newness? Is it by being sexually pure or brave or perfect? No. No, that's not what the verse says. That's not what the text says. Look at what it says in verse six. He said to me, "It is done." I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. It goes to the thirsty. It goes to the thirsty. It's the good news of God's grace. That's how you receive newness. It doesn't go to the good people because there are no good people. It doesn't go to the upright people because there are no upright people. It goes to the thirsty, to those who say, look, I know I'm a mess. I know I'm jacked up. I know I'm not good enough, but I thirst for Christ's righteousness. I thirst for Jesus. I thirst for him. Lord, I thirst for more of you. And so we come to him with the prayer of thirst. Some of you have been made new. You've been born again, but you're not tasting the newness that he brings because you've forgotten what it feels like to thirst. Come to Jesus. Come to the throne. Behold the king of the cross and thirst for the water that only he can give. He's the one who says, behold, I am making all things new. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. 
If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.